Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome, everybody, to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland. Al is busy um, making finishing touches to his latest Sherman model. Um, but I am joined today by Olivia Smith. Uh, Olivia, welcome. Thank you for coming on board. No, thank you. And you are uh, you're, you're a young historian, aren't you? Which is exciting. <laughs> I think that's rather a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Aspiring young historian. Aspiring young historian, but you have worked with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Yes, yes, I've done bits. I'd say I'm at the very beginning of my career right now. The reason we've got you on is because you have a grandmother who is born and brought up in Nazi Germany. And you've talked to her at great length. Yes. So now she was brought up, am I right in saying near Hamburg? Is that correct? Yes, Hamburg near Lam- um, I believe it's called Lamberg. Yes. And she started, she was born in 1935. So for her, she always says she was blissfully ignorant to be a child during Nazi Germany, but lots of it she was very aware of. Um, Both of her parents were in the hospitality business. Uh, Her father was in the civil service, and through that, that led them to become the steward and stewardess at the Hamburg Polo Club. This was like a really renowned. uh, That's amazing. Oh, it's incredible. And, you know, it's full of. Uh, Tell me about. So, so what's the. Was the Hamburg Polo Club, was that quite exclusive? Yeah, very exclusive. Lots of, um, she describes there being right. lots of kind of like rich merchants and especially, you know, there's a link here that kind of further on the story, lots of Jewish families. There is a cracking photo right. of my great-grandfather stood at the Hamburg Polo Club right next to Kaiser Wilhelm II. No way. And, and it's, it's fascinating. You can see him there. And so that kind of shows the, you know, the people that they were engaging with at the time. But at the outbreak of war, they kind of made a shift from, because of their career, obviously, it, was, it wasn't really the best paid job. And they made a shift from being stewardess and stewardess at the polo club to doing it at the Hamburg barracks. So at the start of the, when the war broke out, my grandmother was at the barracks with all of these soldiers. They said they had a little apartment within the barracks and... Because my great-grandmother was, um, I think she was in charge of the kitchen. Nanny said she could remember her making the soup and all the soldiers coming in. She could be in her little bed at night and constantly on the stairs, you'd hear the soldiers' heavy boots hit the floor. But she said, and I kind of said, what was that atmosphere like? She said it was very busy as war broke out, but she said everyone was so friendly. But I guess as a young child, what would you really know? But she recalls the details she came out with was fascinating because at the start of the interview, she said, oh, I don't remember much. But she suddenly was able to say about this barracks, she remembers seeing this large, like, German eagle, gold. It it fascinated her as a child. And this massive swastika underneath Mm -hmm. it at the kind of the gates. And they had this receptionist, or the reception, and there was the gold, red, and black boxes there for, I think, for the mail for each of the soldiers. Um, she was walking past these huge gun installations as obviously it would have been a strategic place for Allied bombing if needed to be and just being surrounded by constant military at this point obviously her father was then caught up to the war he was taken into the infantry how old would he have been at that time roughly do you have any idea in his 30s yeah okay so yeah so he yeah I mean you know and obviously German army in 1939-1940 was very infantry heavy so you know, that was pretty much the natural first stop. Yeah, and he, they believe that he was the first into Holland, and I have this fantastic photo of him on this bench in kind of, um, I think, just south of Amsterdam. 
and there he is in his like right. kind of the Wehrmacht I think uniform and it's a lovely little photo and that's roughly around 1940 and they were still obviously at the barracks right. at this time and of Christmas 1940 they got the news that he'd been killed and this has kind of been a bit of a controversy in a way of we don't really know what happened to him. One story at the time, she said this German soldier come into the barracks kitchens and she was stood hiding behind the stove because he was so tall and she was scared of this guy. And he relayed the news just after Christmas that he had been killed apparently cleaning his gun. And after talking to my mum about this the other day, she said that she recalls being told many years ago that after the Berlin Wall fell and she was reunited with family on the East Germany that they told her they found out the truth that apparently he was shot due to his pre-war connections with Jews from the Hamburg Polo Club. And to this day, none of us really know what did happen. Goodness me. I don't think he'd, he, wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been shot just for knowing Jews in a polo club. I mean, I, I do, I do think, think, you know, reported as killed for cleaning it, you know, while cleaning his gun does sound like a euphemism for being executed to mm. me a little bit. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a bit of a cover-up. But, but, yeah, it's very strange. Um, it's not unusual at all that you would have photographs. I mean, German troops were encouraged to take lots of photos mm. in, in the in the battle, and they all did. And you know, Germans were very into recording absolutely everything. They were absolutely encouraged. A lot of people had cameras and took photos. They were just avid photographers in Germany. And so you do see in this early stage of the war, you do see an awful lot of home movies. You see a lot of photos. You know, they're forever on... You can buy little collections on eBay and things like this that people have found in their attic and thought, well, I don't want anything to do with my German past, so I'm going to flog it. Um, and so there's a lot of that goes on. Um, but if he was attacking in the north, he'd have been in, in what was known as Army Group B. So the the, the whole attack for, that was launched on the 10th of May 1940 was split into two. Um, there was Army Group B, and that the idea was that that would come down in the traditional advance which is over the low countries which are obviously easy to traverse and mountains and woods and all the rest of it and, and river valleys so they go over the top there they draw up the british and french troops up through belgium all the while army group a would then come round the back through the ardennes forest which was believed certainly by the french um to be impenetrable to kind of armored columns they'd come in round the back and capture them in this in this massive encirclement called a kettleschlacht which is very much kind of the traditional way in which the Germans approach battle. It's just on a much, much bigger scale. And you've got Luftwaffe, the air forces, to support them and all the rest of it. So he would have been one of the infantry divisions moving in as part of Army Group B. And he'd have just been moving in on his own two feet. I mean, most of these divisions weren't mechanised at this stage. So they would have been dependent on horse and cart for transport. And for the most part, there would have been a few trucks, but for the most part, and they'd have been marching. So he'd have tramped all the way in. So, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you know, it's fascinating that he's part of this kind of incredible moment in history, really. It's, it's odd in a way because history just stopped so soon for him at the beginning of the war. And, you know, it's 1940 and suddenly we've got another oddly, you know, five years to carry on for it. And, you know, for my grandmother, that war was still going on for her. So what happened to her? What to what happened to your great grandmother? I mean, what happened to, to so she, your, your great grandfather's widow? Yeah, she carried on working at the barracks whilst right. Hamburg was even being bombed. But during that time, right. her children were evacuated. So she was quite. They did whilst right. they were evacuated. So they were completely separated. Completely, completely yeah. separated. So her, my grandmother's sister, who was about six years older, she went up to Denmark. Um, her school was actually taken up to Denmark no. and I believe to my, my grandmother described it as they apparently placed schools there as part of Hitler's plan to the airy race and encourage it further. 
Um, so she was placed there and she recalled, you know, they'd be having stones pelted at her, flour, everything. She was scared being there. Whilst then my grandmother and no, her brother amazing. were taken over to Prussia. So it was very different on where they ah. were taken to. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because because in, in here here in the UK, you know, we we think of evacuation. We just think of Britain's experience mm. of evacuation at the start of the war and briefly in 1938, the Munich crisis. And, you know, and lines of children on Waterloo Station with little kind of luggage labels around their necks and all the rest of it. You forget that the whole of Europe is doing this. You know, kids are being evacuated from Turin and Milan in northern Italy. You know, kids are being evacuated from Hamburg and, and all the major cities in Germany as well, of, of which, of course, your, your grandmother was one. It's incredible, really. Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting because it really highlights this history. It kind of opens up the narrative. And I think it really shows that this yeah, truly it? was a global war and in every single sense. But for her, they spent, I think, about a year there. And then as during this time, right. so her brother was in the Hitler Youth and her sister was then in the female version, the BDM. The BDM. Yes, the BDM. And she's always said yep. it was a lot stricter. The League of German Girls. Yeah, it was, and she said there was, that was a lot stricter compared to what her brother was in with the Hitler Youth, which I find very interesting, an element of strictness compared to, right. you know, in differing agendas. Similar sort of thing, though. They did a they did a similar sort of thing to the to the Hitler Youth, which obviously is is for the boys, but but in the BDM, you know, they would have lots of political indoctrination, of course, um, lots of camping, outdoor activities, lots of um, acrobatics and exercise and sports and all the rest of it, but also sort of home stuff as well. So it's a kind of you know, it's it's oh, it's obviously less martial, but it's still about being outdoor and robust and healthy and exercise and all that kind of stuff i mean it's the same principles definitely i think it's really interesting what you said about like indoctrinating because she all that was a word throughout the whole interview that she kept referring to they were indoctrinated right and i think that's something that obviously yeah, was yeah. really resonant with her of what her siblings and she must have witnessed what they were going through but during this time so this was just that was her brother and sister and also during this time her cousin was a kind of little blonde cripple his little name called Horst. And he has a really interesting story. As I think, especially when we look at popular narratives of the Second World War, and you think concentration camps, and you think what the Nazis did to people, you would naturally assume with the Jews. But he was a typical German Aryan boy. In 1943, he got taken to the doctors and was diagnosed as a cripple. And the doctor, apparently their duty to report to the Ministry of Health, the Nazi one, and say, this boy's a cripple. And he got taken away for treatment. He was taken to southern Bavaria. They never saw him. They Jesus, I thought they'd be slightly worried whether they ever saw him again. They didn't, unfortunately. They 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 begged, you know. No. They begged, they begged, and they... They begged. never saw him again? They never saw him again. They offered, they sent them chocolate. They said they got even travel permits. Holy moly. They found out. So years, I think actually only within the last 20 years, they found out because my grandmother's German name is Halbenreiser. And in Germany, it's an extremely unusual name. And they did a search, and there's only two people in the entirety of Germany they found with addresses of that name. And one of them was in Hamburg. And it's a direct descendant of him. So it was one of my grandmother's kind of lost relatives. And they found out, and what this person, one of his relatives, had discovered that in Bavaria, he was taken to a special institution. And basically, they, the Nazis systematically starved him. And he died. They found a certificate of death on the 16th of May, 1945. Oh, no. Yeah. It- God, I'm absolutely gobsmacked by that. So this is, um, but this is sort of effectively part of the Action T4, yeah. you know, which is the euthanasia programme. Mm, yeah. You know, you're some way imperfect. You just get rid of them and then you get rid of the bad gene pool and, you know, exactly. everyone turns into the Aryan super race. I mean, God, it's bonkers, isn't mm. it? 
That's so awful. God, I'm absolutely stunned by that. I didn't. I really didn't expect you to t- say that. Well, I mean, God, I mean, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? It's very emotional, I have to admit, because you know, it's I. It's one of my relatives. For for years, I've always assumed, been. I've never been ashamed to be German or have heritage in that way. But when I heard that, yeah. it made that took away any stigma because I thought. My family was involved in it as well. They were as effective in that side as well. They weren't Jews. They was wow. t- he, you know, she describes them as a young blonde boy, blue eyes, the most typical things that you would expect of an Aryan race. Yeah, but he's a, you know, he's a victim of the Holocaust as yeah. well. I mean, you know, that's, you know, wow. I mean, you know, this is all Carl Brandt and, and, and these sort of wacko physicians and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, Wow, that's unbelievable. And have you got have you got any pictures of him? Um, I believe so. She's got a full um, what the family in that they found in Hamburg did a full research on it, and she's got it all. But it's all in German, so she's been trying to translate it for me, so I can have it all in future, so I can happily send someone to you. Yeah, yeah. After a year of being over in Prussia, um, you know they didn't know if they were ever going to see their mother again. And one day out of the blue, her yeah. brother come running into her room and was like, Lisa, Lisa, Mutti's here. And she, he said, she was so confused. He went, I've seen her ring in the bathroom. And we, even, we still can't understand how they recognised she'd turned up in the middle of the night and she'd come to collect her kids and she took them back over to Lamberg. And she collected her children and wow. she said, you know, my nanny said she kind of remembers that journey on the trains. It was very stressful. Mm-hmm. Lots of soldiers, lots of Red Cross nurses as well about and they obviously couldn't yep. go back to Hamburg where they originally were I was it was completely bombed out and that's where they then settled in Lamberg. Yeah, it's it's such a trans you think for such a young child, the distraught, the emotional mm. trauma, probably not even realising it you'd be going through. So and- this is so when when was she picked up? Was this sort of uh, Operation Gomorrah was which was the destruction of Hamburg? End of July, beginning of August nineteen forty three. I would say right now. So is this this is it's that yeah. kind of time when she's when your mother's back yeah, in. Yeah, I would definitely yeah, say around that time. Yeah, she never really gives any dates. So then what happens to her in the last two years of the war? So, I mean, you know, the the noose is tightening around Germany. I mean, it's not as though... I mean, obviously there wasn't much left to bomb in Hamburg, but there was still plenty of bombing nearby. I mean, you know, Bremen and Bremenhaven and Wilhelmshaven, they're not a million miles away from there. All, you know, members of the Nazi party would always wear badges, and she was always told by her mother to be careful of informers. She didn't want to be seen right. to say anything out of place. There's recollections of hearing. Well, that's what it did. That's what it did for a lot of um, people like your your um, your great uncle. I mean, you know, it it was informers. Mm. You know, the, the the Action T4 program was completely dependent on informers. No, exactly. I mean, I don't know if you saw the series World on Fire. Yes. There's lots of things that I kind of really didn't like about it, but the informing on the child, you know, that was. That's exactly what was going on. Yeah, exactly. And they, she said that you were always so weary of people around you and what was going on. There's an element of like paranoia, I think, just from having a day-to-day life. And there was other little things mm. by her sister would go to go simply just to get flavourings because obviously they didn't have any food. She describes like maize. I think they lived off maize yes. soup for years. Well, rationing in Germany was spectacularly worse than it ever was in the UK. I mean... You know, I grew up as a as a boy in the seventies, kind of you know, with constant people you know, that's far too much butter on your toast. You know, in the war, dot dot dot. You know, rationing in Britain was was pretty tame, even even post war when it got a little bit worse. You know, compared to Germany, I mean, you know, people Germans were starving. I mean, one of the main reasons they went into the Soviet Union in the first place, apart from the kind of a whole ideological strand, was because they were so short of resources and particularly food and fuel. I mean, that was one of the prime reasons for doing it, and. 
you know, Germans really suffered in the war from the point of view of, of hunger. I mean, you know, particularly if you're urbanised, you know, you don't have the kind of you, you don't have the bounty of the country and and you're dependent on it coming in. And, and the more the country's getting bombed, so the infrastructure's getting damaged and it's harder to move stuff around. And they don't sim- they simply don't have the wherewithal to produce it anyway. So I'm not surprised she's remembers sort of, you know, crappy May soup. Yeah, exactly. So where was she at the end of the war then? Where, um, at the end of the war, she was still in Lamberg. So they spent quite a lot of time there. Yep. Um, the end of her war story, I think, is just absolutely fascinating. She kind of, they said there was whisperings amongst all the elders of a big allied parachute landing has just happened. And I believe that's um, on the Rhine with Monty and the guy, you know, crossing yep. the Rhine there. Operation Varsity. Yeah, so yep. I think that it was interesting, you know, the whisperings, you could imagine kind of what's going on mm. amongst society thinking. And she said they knew yeah, yeah. when they heard this that it was soon going to be over. And she describes this constant rumbling. You could hear people, you could hear the kind of rumbling of the Allies getting closer and closer and closer. Man. And the tent shows you, you know, you could see she's... Well, how Lamberg is... How do I describe this? It's structured. So it's like on a cliff. So you've got a lower part of the right. town and then the upper part of the town. And she was right. on the upper part of the town. And obviously, strategic Allied bombing or shelling, anything was come to the top. So on the top, right near her house, was all these gun emplacements, machine guns, artillery of the Germans. And she said <clears> they used to run along and play, <laughs> play in front of all these guns. And she used to see the long chains, I think, of like the machine guns. And you'd see them all kind of whispering right. down into the cliffs. And, and they were red. Incredible. She said that you could sense there was kind of rumbling. Everything was going on as they were preparing, obviously, for the Allies coming. They blew the bridge. The Nazis did. There was obviously a big bridge because they were right on the Elbe. Um, so they blew the bridge and as they did that everyone the siren started going off so they knew they had to go into their cellars and she said everyone she describes how lucky they were everyone had cellars I think it's how typically the houses were designed there and then suddenly the sirens were going off the, you could she said you could hear the allies on the other side of the water and so they all went down into the cellars pots and pans on the head they took their bedding down and they were there for about right. five days I believe Four to five days. She said it really started to kick off and around the 24th of April. So this is only really kind of 75 years ago, last week, roughly. Um, she said as they were in, down in the cellars, they were in the mattresses, and she said you could hear the shells coming up into the top. And she described it as, you know when you jump on a bed and the mattress kind of bounces and it kind of like the shockwave, mm. she said that's what it constantly felt like. You were vibrating and you could Amazing. feel it around you. And then on one night, their house got hit. And it was only a tiny little house. When they came back from, when her mother brought them back from Prussia, somehow she managed to get a house built for them all. Small little house. Yeah, Mm. how on earth she did that, I find that fascinating in wartime Germany. And this shell took off, I think, half the side of the house. And she describes this glowing shrapnel coming through the centre into the cellar. And luckily, she says, how lucky it didn't catch a light. Yeah, goodness. And there, there they were. That's very vivid, isn't it? It's mm. very vivid. It's obviously very kind of um, imprinted on her mind. Her memory. Mm, I think this final bit, the kind of like the liberation in a way, was really the key moment for her memory. She would have been nearly coming up to 10. So I think as yes. a child, it would stick with your memory quite a lot now. Mm-hmm. But as this is going on, um, as the house is destroyed, obviously part of it, the doors off, everything as well, she said the silence then crept in. 
it was the eeriest silence she said you could ever imagine because suddenly you gone from bombing to absolutely mm. nothing. And then suddenly her mum was saying, keep quiet, everyone, keep quiet. There's footsteps. And they could hear these footsteps getting closer and closer and closer. And suddenly these soldiers come in. They didn't know if they were British, they were Germans, who they were. It turns out yeah. they were British soldiers. And they shone a light on each of them to see, apparently, she found out after there was lots of sniping going on. The fanatics were going until the end, she describes. And her mm-hmm. mother pulls her sister back and says, you must stop, take your badge off, because she still had a Hitler youth badge on. So that's a sign of the Nazi party. And her sister, who would have been six years older, so into her kind of late teens, she wanted to fight. She wanted to go and carry on. She wanted to go pick up a gun. She wanted to go right. for it. And her mm-hmm. mother really had to be like, no, you sit down, you take your badge off, and we are, this is it. And she said it was a very tense situation. And even afterwards, her sister went and got water and took it to the prisoners of German prisoners in the kind of the big camps that the Allies set up and gave mm. them water. And the same, I believe, with them, her mother did as well. But I think it was more, I don't know if it was sympathy. She kind of said they were indoctrinated, but yep. she always described that afterwards they all knew what was best and, you know, they understood the implications of the Nazis themselves. Sure. Um, so it was just really interesting. She said then the Allies in her little house at the end of their garden, they set up the administrative base there. So they had the British there. And the right. British soldiers, after they'd originally first come down to sell it, they all left them and they then returned. And they brought them, her, as she always describes, I think, now this was the story that's always stuck with me, that her first piece of chocolate and fruit for the entire war was delivered by the Allies yeah. there at a the moment. Well, good for you for doing it. And I hope you'll get her permission and um, to kind of send it on somewhere where it can be, you know, the, the Imperial War Museum or National Army Museum or any of these places. They'd all absolutely die for, mm, for, for that definitely. oral history. Really would. Um, and, you know, good for you for doing it because, of course, so many of us kind of, oh, if only I'd, spoken to my grandfather grand great uncle whatever when i had the chance you know and many people don't it's really important to get these memories down while you can so good for you and that's an amazing story i'm absolutely gobsmacked about the brother yeah terrible story isn't it it really is and i think it's even worse that it took so long for them to find out they just assumed that he'd yeah. they, they had no one had any word of it at the time no, no one had no clue. They said that his parents were writing to the officials to be like, please, can we come see him? We've got these travel passes. He loved chocolate, apparently, and they sent, they sent these officials chocolate. And oh. it, it's just all those kind of little heartbreaking stories. And I think what's really mm. important is the fact that, you know, this did happen to German people as well. It, you know, at these, you mm. know, what he looks like, your typical Aryan figure. And you think, why? Yeah, sure. And yet it still happened. Absolutely terrible. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for sharing that. It's been brilliant having you no, on. No, thank you. Um, that's just been absolutely fascinating. And, and clearly your grandmother's an amazing woman. <laughs> and those uh, the, the bouncing mattress analogy, I love that. It's um, It was incredibly vivid. So thank no, you. No, it's okay. Thank you for having me on.